Thank you, Pastor Janine, for um, that video of some really good news and for that invitation as well. Well, hello, church family. My name is Annie Newfeld. I am the pastor of small groups here at Lake Avenue Church. And this morning, I get the privilege and the joy of sharing God's word with you. Um, right now, we're in a series called Traits, where we're talking about what does it mean to be part of God's family? What traits do we carry? What traits manifest in us? when we become God's children. Last week, we talked about loving one another, and this week, we get to talk about cherishing one another. I am married to a fabulous man named Josh, and when we got married, Pastor Roger Bosch married us, and we vowed to love and cherish one another. We have two small children, four and two-year-old, and we cherish them, we treasure them. There's lots of hugs and cuddles in our home, especially right now. And this is the way that we traditionally think about cherishing one another in a very traditional sense, kind of in the nuclear family, the people that we're living with. But I think what we will discover today is that this word has much more far-reaching implications for us, especially in God's family. And so whether we are in a pandemic with all of its specific challenges and, and limitations or not, today we're gonna look into what does it mean to cherish one another? in the body of Christ. So one of my best friends and roommate from Fuller Seminary is named Lindsay. And Lindsay is a spark plug. Um, she is full of joy and wisdom and she's someone who really enjoys life. Um, in part, I think, because she almost lost it. When we were in seminary together, both of her kidneys failed kind of at the same time. Um, her, skin, her skin became yellow, her body got bloated, she got put on dialysis several times a week for several hours at a time, and, and very soon, um, the doctors started talking about her needing a transplant, which, as you can imagine, in a 27-year-old was, was a scary thing. Um, they tested her friends and her family, and they found out her dad was healthy, and he was a match. And so he went through a painful surgery, gave his daughter his kidney, which he was happy to do, happy sacrifice to save his daughter's life. A couple years went by, um, Lindsay got married, and um, eventually, though, her kidney just, just kind of petered out. It wasn't doing so well. There were lots of complications, and so just two years in, uh, she needed another transplant. As you can imagine, the fears and the anxiety started rising even more. Um, what did she need? A new kidney every two years. They tested her friends and her family. And finally, um, on Valentine's Day, her husband, Chris, took her on a scavenger hunt through San Francisco. And the last clue he gave her was a picture of a kidney. And this was Valentine's Day. If you've seen a kidney, it kind of looks like a heart in the shape of a heart. And it said, I'm a match, emotionally, spiritually, and physically as well. Um, he gave her his kidney through another painful surgery, and it's still going strong. Lindsay is healthy today. Lindsay is cherished. Her father and her husband gave her a piece of themselves so that she could live. They sacrificed a part of their body, something that they might actually need down the road, to, to give her life. And this kind of self-giving love is how we're going to talk about what it means to cherish one another today. When God says that we are family to each other, it's not some pie-in-the-sky fairy tale. It's real. It's gritty. It's painful. Especially in a time right now where all we see around us is scarcity and loss, it's sometimes scary to think about giving ourselves away and cherishing each other. But cherishing is at the heart of the gospel, and it's one of the traits in the family of God. So let's take a look 
at our passage for, the, for today. Would you join me in reading 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through, 12, 1 through 12. Please stand for the reading of God's word. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make doesn't spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please people, but God, who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We weren't looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So Paul is writing a letter here to the Thessalonian church, which he planted and he nourished, and it's thriving now. In chapter 1, we we read that they received the news with joy. They received the message of God with joy. And now they are a model for other believers. Word of their faith and their story has spread across their land. This is a church comprised of Gentiles who turned away from idols to the living God. And they are a story of what's possible when Jesus takes hold of your life. Their church is thriving. And they're doing so despite deep pain. Um, They receive the word of God with joy amidst suffering. Paul says that previously he had faced um, struggle and trial and he had been treated outrageously. And yet in the midst of the suffering all around them, this church was thriving. As I read this text, I am inspired. And I wonder, could the same be said of us? Our world, we are in our own crisis, and our church can either thrive or crumble under the weight of this thing. So what can we learn from the Thessalonians about how to flourish? And I'm going to tell you from the start what I think they got right. They cherished the gospel, and they cherished one another. And as they pursued Jesus together, their church thrived. So what can we learn from them about cherishing? Well, Paul begins his describing his relationship with the Thessalonians by saying, here's how we didn't relate to you. Before, how he's, before he talks about how he did act, he's going to give them a list of ways that they didn't act among them. And he says, we did not come to you with flattery or error or impure motives. We weren't trying to trick you. We didn't put on a mask, which I think, I don't know what he would say today. Um, We weren't looking for praise from people. We weren't trying to please you. We didn't assert our authority over you. Paul begins by saying these things, these are not traits in the family of God. And the main thing he's saying here is we weren't imposters. We were the real deal. We weren't trying to put on a show. We weren't in in a competition for you to like us. We were, I was Paul. Take it or leave it. And I think right off the bat, 
we have something very powerful to learn from Paul and the Thessalonians, that cherishing each other in the family of God isn't the same thing as pleasing each other all the time in the family of God. It doesn't mean we always have a smile on our face. It doesn't mean that we're always happy with one another. It means showing up with authenticity, real and raw, and trusting that our brothers and sisters will love us. Now, personally, I kind of hate that Paul begins like this because I am a people pleaser. As a young girl growing up in the South, um, I learned very quickly that if people around me liked me, I felt safe and secure, and so I sought out that affirmation wherever I could. But the tricky thing about people pleasing is that it can look very similar to cherishing. It can look like care and love and concern. The only difference is that I'm not actually showing up in the relationship. I'm just giving you a mask of who I think you want to see. For example, I might ask you how your sick relative is doing, in part because I love you and I care about you and I am praying. But there's a piece of me that's asking because I want you to see that I love you. I want you to see that I'm praying for you so that you might be pleased with me. I might tell you that no, that, that comment didn't hurt my feelings when truly it did. Um, but I want you to be pleased with me. I want this relationship to stay intact. So I'll say, no, that didn't bother me, but really I'll, I'll take a step away because my feelings are hurt. And so the people that I'm trying to please, the people that we're trying to please, don't end up being in relationship with the real me, the real you, just a shell, which doesn't bode well for depth in relationship or trust. And so you can see why Paul says, this is not going to work. This way of living, this people-pleasing, is not compatible with cherishing one another in the body of Christ. This thing is too important that we're doing, and so we've got to show up raw and real with everything that makes me, me. So then after naming what they were not, Paul begins to name what they were, and he uses three images three layers of relationship that he kind of stacks on top of one another that capture what it meant for these people to cherish one another. They are somewhat shocking. They are somewhat contradictory. But I think they accurately describe what it took for this church to thrive 2,000 years ago, and they give us a way forward as well. So what are these images? First, young child. Paul calls himself a young child. He says in verses 6 and 7, we were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Now, if we took a poll of CEOs across the nation from the top Fortune 500 companies out there, and we asked them, give me a metaphor for your leadership. Who are you really trying to be? What's an analogy for your leadership? I would bet you 100 rolls of toilet paper that they would not say, young child, toddler. I'm really trying to go for a two-year-old in my meetings. Many of us probably do behave like two-year-olds in our meetings, but that's not we're going, what we're going for. That's not usually how we describe our relationships as adults. And especially in Paul's time, when it was a, where it was a patriarchal society in which a young child had no power in the family system. So why does he say this? What's going on here? Well, I think we gain more insight when we go back to verse 6 and see what comes before this peculiar statement. Paul says that he could have asserted his authority, but instead 
he acted like a young child. That Greek phrase that's translated asserted his authority has the connotation in standing in the weightiness of his position. Paul was a heavyweight in the faith. As an apostle, as the the person who planted this church, he could have thrown his weight around to get whatever he wanted. But instead, he sheds that weight. Um, He lays that weight down and comes as a young child with no authority, no substance to stand on. Paul links himself with those who have very little power, very little authority. And it's rather shocking at first glance. Men of his day, they they didn't do this. But if you look closely, it sounds strikingly familiar to what Paul says of Jesus in Philippians 2. Jesus, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Paul says Jesus could have asserted his authority as God, and yet he made himself nothing. And Paul, as he follows Jesus, he's saying, I am not going to throw my weight around, but instead I'm going to make myself small like a young child. He's unassuming, gentle, releasing power, and uplifting people wherever he can. So when I was in seminary, um, I got the privilege of being part of a Bible study with Dr. John Golden Gay. Uh, Dr. Golden Gay has been an Old Testament professor at Fuller. He's been a pastor. Um, He is a 70-year-old man full of wisdom. And I felt deeply cherished by John as I look back on that relationship. Um, Not only because this British man welcomed us into his home and served us English tea and cookies every week, Not only because every time I walked into his home, he grabbed me, lifted me up, and twirled me around. Um, Not only because he invited us into his life and the life of Anne, his wife, who had advanced MS at that point in time. I felt cherished by John mostly, though, because of how he invited and nurtured our voices. Now, John could have stood on his years of authority, teaching, preaching, studying, writing, researching as a scholar and a pastor. He could have stood on his years of wisdom and spiritual maturity, having walked with his wife through such a harrowing disease. But John did not throw his weight around as we studied the scriptures together. Every week, I felt as if my voice as a 27-year-old female seminary student still discerning God's call in my life, that my voice had just as much weight as John's, that my thoughts mattered just as much as his did. And his posture in the group enabled us to um, thrive, for us to trust our voices. His humility lifted me, and I was deeply cherished. Paul says that he is like a child. He begins describing his relationship with the Thessalonians with this shocking metaphor of humility. And Paul shows us very clearly that as we take up less space, the gospel takes up more space. He shows us that especially for those of us who hold power, who hold authority, cherishing means becoming small, that others might flourish and that the church might expand. Sometimes we think that if we want the church to grow and thrive, we've got to get louder and loom larger than everyone else. 
And yet Paul shows us here that the church grows as we live in humility with one another as young children. Praise be to God. So Paul starts with, young, with a young child, but then he layers on top of that an even more shocking metaphor of nursing mother. He says in verse 7b, just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. And this is perhaps one of the most provocative and for me one of the most exciting things that Paul says. I have a two and four-year-old, both girls at home, and um, so I've stood in this role of nursing mother a lot over the last couple of years, and that role took all of me. I have never given myself away to someone so completely as I have um, as, we nur- as I nursed and raised our kids. I remember the hospital, um, after my first child was born, they gave us a 45-minute class before they sent us home with this child on how to basically keep an infant alive, and 45 minutes was not enough, but through the fog of my exhaustion, I heard them say that my goal every day was to get one stretch of three hours of sleep, that if I could get one consolidated sleep session of three hours, then I would be okay. And I remember just thinking, what? That's, that's my goal? Like, that is a successful day if I get a three-hour nap, essentially. I, I did not think that that was going to work for me. I didn't think I was going to be able to do it. Um, but I could, like you do, um, with a village of my husband and grandparents and um, many of you who brought food. Uh, we did it. We kept them alive. But these creatures, these little creatures, took over my life, my sleep, my body, my time, my hormones. But what came with all of that time and nurture and cherishing is the depth of relationship. Um, as I looked into the eyes of my kid at 3 a.m., tired and exhausted, that created a lasting attachment that can't be taken away. Paul chooses this image, a nursing mother, to talk about his relationship with the Thessalonians. And it's fleshed out by what follows. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. We loved you so much that we gave our very selves to you, our whole being. As a nursing mother gives away herself, her time, her sanity, her energy to her child, so we were with you. He says, our relationship isn't just about words and ideas. It's not just an intellectual pursuit. It took all of him. It was care, tenderness, self-sacrifice, and vulnerability. Now, this is countercultural. But again, Paul is taking his cues from Jesus. From our, for our Lent devotionals, I asked one of my friends, Coco Hovagimian, to create an art piece um, depicting Jesus on the cross. And you may have seen this in your Lenten devotionals. This piece unhinges me every time I see it. But what I find most compelling is Coco's description of the piece. He says, my depiction of the crucifixion was to capture the tension in the body of Christ on the cross. It is intended to capture the intensity of pain and despair that Christ had to endure for us. That tension is shown through the geometric shapes being ripped apart. Coco captured Christ's agony with these geometric shapes almost seeming like they're radiating as they are being pulled apart as his body is suffering. Paul's message here is this. Just as Jesus sacrificed his body 
on the cross, just as a nursing mother gives herself to her child, so we were with you. Now, there are so many stories of how this is happening at Lake Avenue. Just in this service, we are remembering our um, brothers and sisters who laid their lives down for this country, who sacrificed themselves for us. Um, We heard from Pastor Janine's video about uh, the Andersons who are laying down their time, um, their preferences for in order to shop for people, about Carlos who lovingly, joyfully served Joanna in such a beautifully sacrificial way. This is what Paul is talking about here. Paul could have used a variety of images to talk about his relationship with the Thessalonians, but he chooses this one because it's at the heart of the gospel. Isaiah even uses the image of a nursing mother in Isaiah 49 to talk about God's love for us. Can a woman forget her nursing child or show no compassion for the child of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. If this is how God bestows his love on us, we are called to do the same. And so we come to the last image, Father. Paul says in verse 11, For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Now, Paul's language is helpful here because he balances a rather feminine image with a masculine one. Um, But just as Paul uses the nursing metaphor to describe himself, a man, I think the father metaphor also transcends gender in its application. Paul says that a father encourages, comforts, urges us to live a life worthy of God who calls us into his kingdom and glory. As fathers in the family of God, we're called to urge one another to reflect kingdom values, kingdom traits, the things that the king is about, things like love and justice, things like caring for the poor and outcasts, proclaiming the gospel of God, living in the reality that new life is breaking into a dying world. As fathers in the family of God, we're called to urge each other to do better, to fight against complacency, to stand in the truth of God. And so cherishing each other means that we invite each other to step into who we truly are, children of the king who bear the traits of the king. Now, I think this is what we would expect Paul to say. He is like a father who instructs his children, uh, their faith, the Thessalonians' faith, is a result of the seeds that he planted in their community. But what is so beautiful about this is that Paul claims his role as father only after he has claimed the role of young child and mother, only after he has humbled himself. And this is convicting for us because I think that most of us are pretty comfortable in this role of father with one another. We're, we're comfortable with this idea of encouraging one another and comforting one another, one another, once in a while bringing words of challenge and invitation to each other. We're, we're familiar with that description of our relationships. But Paul models for us here that we can't truly love each other with words of encouragement or challenge until we have really loved each other in humility and vulnerability first. Now, this can take shape in a variety of ways, really big and really small. I'm going to share with you a story of how this is happening on a very micro level in our church. 
One of my friends here is in her 60s, and she has an eight-year-old grandson who has not been really excited about interacting over FaceTime or the digital mediums that are out there. It just doesn't work for his little eight-year-old brain. And my friend could have responded to that by saying, no, I am your grandmother, and you will sit in front of this screen and talk to me. She could have stood in her authority as the matriarch and demanded his attention. Um, or she could have said, okay, if you don't want to talk to me, I don't want to talk to you. But my friend knows Jesus, and she knows that that's not the way of the cross. So she asked this little guy's mom, what, what is he really into? Um, and can he, would he want to share that with us over the screen? And this little guy is into encyclopedias. And so one night, they gathered over their screens, and he opened the Atlas of the World, and he started with the table of contents and launched from there. At the end, um, he said he was ready to go, but that he loved her. Now that is a small example, but do you see what she did there? She came all the way into his world and um, began or entered into this relationship on his terms. She left behind what she would have thought she might have deserved as the grandmother um, and came all the way into his world making herself vulnerable, humbling herself. And by doing so, imagine how she is going to continue to be able to share the gospel with him. Paul calls himself young child, nursing mother, father. He experiences such a deep connection to the Thessalonians that it can only be captured in multiple layered, somewhat paradoxical images in this web of family relationships. They are so connected that one metaphor just wasn't gonna do. But here's the most important part and the thing that I think we need to take away, the most important thing. Woven throughout all of these verses is the centrality of the gospel. They declared it in verse two, they shared it in verse eight, they proclaimed it in verse nine. God's kingdom and his calling on their lives is central. Jesus, not their relationships with one another, Jesus, is at the center. And he is what enables them to love each other because he is the one who humbled himself and made himself nothing. He is the one who um, his role as the savior took all of him. He is the one who enables us to live a life that's worthy of God. He cherishes us. And so we do the same. So what do we do with all of this? Uh, it can be captured in two words, cherished and cherishing. First, be cherished. We have to create some space, especially in this season, to be cherished by the God of the universe, to take in God's love. For some of you, that may mean that morning walk that it's hard to get up when um, we may not have that much to, or when we don't have a schedule that's set for us, um, but get up for that morning walk, spend some time with the Lord. For others of us, might mean getting on one more Zoom call at the end of the day, which I know is very hard, um, but with a friend who asks us really good questions about life and faith. I know for me, I've been doing the prayer of examine that Pastor Jeff talked about a couple weeks ago where I review my day in the presence of the Lord and enjoy him cherishing me. How can you be cherished by the God of the universe this week? So be cherished and second, live a life of cherishing one another. And that may sound um, easy, but it starts with humility 
And for most of us, that's, that's going to be hard. So what are the spaces where we need to make ourselves smaller? Where do we need to take up less space so that the gospel can take up more space? Perhaps it's in your home where you give up your Netflix, Netflix preference for your roommate or spouse. Perhaps it's at the grocery store where we give that last carton of eggs to our neighbor. Perhaps it's as you sign up for the neighborhood resource network from the Some Good News video from Pastor Janine earlier, and you sign up to help someone else in need. Perhaps it's with those who have been historically treated unjustly. I think of our black and brown brothers and sisters right now who the racism against them is all over the news, who are disproportionately affected by the virus. I think of people who, are, who have been treated unjustly and made to feel small. As I humble myself and as I make myself small, how can I open up and give them some of the space that I was standing on? Church family, how can we cherish as infant and nursing mother? And then, and only then, how can we cherish as fathers, encouraging each other to reflect the king? Brothers and sisters, we are invited in this passage to be part of something bigger because as we do this together, this cherishing and being cherished, the message of Jesus will ring out from us and we will be known as a powerful force for good. As we love each other like this, our world will see the church not as an institution that holds people down, but that lifts people up. Not as an institution that excludes so many, but that is for so many. Not as an institution that looms large, but as a people who become small so that all may flourish. As we weather this lengthening pandemic and as we all grow more frustrated, exhausted, lonely, and bored, we can know that we're part of something bigger because our eyes are not on the pandemic. Our eyes are on Jesus. And even though you might be watching this worship live stream alone, we are not alone. We are not alone because we are part of God's revolutionary people, God's revolutionary family who are ever cherished and ever cherishing. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me? Jesus, thank you. Thank you for coming into our world emptying yourself, becoming one of us. Thank you for stretching your arms out on the cross and setting us free. Lord, soften us to your grace. Soften us to your spirit. Soften us to your love so that we might receive it and then embolden us to proclaim your gospel to a world that desperately needs some good news. Lord, send us with your love with your humility, with your self-sacrificing action into our world that many might know you. In your name we pray, amen.